everyone, and welcome back to Partial Lab. I'm Daniel Lowenstein, one of the writers here at Aleph Beta. And Beth Lesh here. I'm one of the writers along with Daniel. And this week we are going to be talking about Parshat Ki Tavo. But before we get into the Parsha, I just want to remind all of our listeners out there to please subscribe uh, on your favorite podcasting app. And also, please feel free to rate us. Give us five stars. Uh, that way, other people can find us too. Uh, with that, let's move to the Parsha. So, Beth, what happens in Parsha Kitavo? Well, Daniel, there are a whole panoply of things that happen in the, in this Parsha. You've got the mitzvah of Bikurim, the idea that the first fruits that, that you grow on your land, you have to bring to the temple. We've got the laws of Maisrot, of tithes, which um, tell us the portions of our produce and of our livestock that we need to give away. We've got this commandment to gather large stones and plaster them and inscribe, engrave the entire Torah upon them. We've got the whole story about Mount Grisim and Mount Abal, that the Israelites are supposed to proclaim these blessings and curses upon them in this elaborate choreographed ceremony. And then we've got this whole long list of additional blessings and curses that will accrue to us if we do or don't follow God's commands. So it's really a whole mixed bag. Thank you for that, Beth. And let me ask you, which of those things do you find to be uh, the most confusing or or troubling, the one that you want to understand better the most? Okay, so definitely the biggest question mark for me is this whole this whole thing about proclaiming blessings and curses on the mountains. It is, it's fascinating. It's a very intriguing portrayal, but it's a giant mystery to me. Yeah, Beth, I feel the same way. And I'm hoping we can talk about it a little bit today. I know I have a lot of questions about it, but uh, what what are some of yours? So for one thing, I want to know, and I think this is the big one, why is it that we have to do this at all, right? I mean, God gives us his laws. Moshe teaches them to the Jewish people, so that should be enough. So why do we need to do this reenactment where we ourselves go up and proclaim them aloud, right? Just to, to venture a little bit maybe into theory territory, it seems like there's something important about us taking ownership and us repeating it in our own words. You know, it's almost like... Uh, See one, do one, teach one, that sort of thing. But um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, we won't. We don't have to. We don't have to go that far yet. But that's what I'm wondering about. I'm wondering about why it has to take place on these mountains in particular. I don't think we've heard about these mountains at all before in the Torah. Have they come up, Daniel? So I think they came up briefly earlier in uh, Sefer Dvarim, but uh, you know only in the same context. Right. Exactly. So we had earlier a, a, a succinct command about the, the proclamation of these curses and blessings in Re'e, but we haven't otherwise heard about Mount Grisim and Mount Abal. Um, so I want to know why these mountains. And um, I don't know, maybe we can do a little bit of a geography lesson, because I think that's that's one of the question marks here for people who are reading it. Are they Were these important landmarks that would have been understandable intuitively to, to someone at the time? Um, or, you know, because to us, it's not. To us, you know, they don't have any particular meaning to me. Um, I want to know about the, um, the arrangement of the tribes on either mountain. It doesn't right. seem like a totally intuitive division between them. So why is it that Shimon and Levi and Yehuda are over on this mountain, but Ruvain's on the other side and what's going on with all of that? Um, I want to know why these particular curses, because it is, it is not pretending to be an exhaustive summary of, of, you know, Kol HaTorah Kulo of the entire Torah. So what's going on with those? And are there any common links between them? And then my last question is this. Um, if you just read this text, if you just read Kitavo, then it sounds like the only thing that they're getting up and proclaiming is a whole list of curses. But there's something strange about that, because if you look at the formulation of this command back in Parshas Re'eh, where it was foreshadowed, 
Back there, Moshe actually says, you're going to command blessings on Mount Grisim and curses on Mount Ebal. So the question is, where are the blessings? There's no text of blessings in this Parsha. So what's going on with that? So that's, I think that's a good enough list to start out with for this podcast, right? Absolutely. Um, and I have to be honest with you, I thought a while about a few of those questions. And I think for the majority of those questions, I came up empty. Uh, okay. Well, so this was a, this was a good podcast. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> Great. Right. No. So for instance, uh, I looked into the names Grisim and Abal. The word Grisim seems to be related to the word Garzen, which is an axe, which comes up in the Torah in context of uh, Yermiklat. Not sure what to make of that. And, and Abal uh, is a grandson of Seir, hmm. who was the one who owned the territory that was eventually inherited by Esau. Don't know what it means, but if anyone out there has a theory... Please let me know, because I am desperate to understand that. That's interesting. But this, the territory that we're talking about, this is not Seir territory. This is squarely land of Israel territory. Okay, that's another question mark. But uh, there is something else that I noticed uh, in this section, uh, which I think might give us an in uh, to understanding at least a piece of what's going on here. So Beth, the piece that I want to talk about is this location specifically, and why it might have been chosen as the place to uh, issue the blessings and the curses. And Beth, I think there's an interesting theme that I think weaves through and shows up a couple of times in the text surrounding this section that we're looking at about Mount Grisim and Mount Eval. And I think that it is possibly suggestive of what's going on here. And, you know, just for the sake of understanding where we're going, we're going to be looking for words that indicate elevation uh, or height. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. Tell me where to look. Okay, so um, just a couple of examples, and we can go through this quickly because we don't really need the context so much. Um, in chapter 27, verse 4, we have, Vayab over takimu When you cross over the Jordan, you should establish these stones. But Beth, the word takim literally means what? Well, takim, it comes from the root kum, to stand up. So you should, you should make them stand up. Exactly. That's one word about height or elevation. If we jump down to verse 6, Oh, so there's some more elevation language. You've got which is cause it to go up, and then also olos, which we would typically translate as burnt offerings, but olos literally means uh, things that go up. Right, and then you have people who are standing on mountaintops uh, for their curses and the blessings. Which is definitely uh, high heights. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. In other words, the command could have been stand somewhere on the land, stand in the valleys, and proclaim these these curses and blessings. But instead, we've got uh, we've got the mountain choreography. Right. Yeah. And then and then Beth, if you jump to chapter twenty eight, um, in the beginning of the the longer section about blessings and curses, you know that rounds off the parsha. So you'll see towards the middle of the verse. Okay, so I, I think I see what you're getting at. Hashem, your God, is placing you, Elyon al kol He's placing you up on high, above all of the nations of the earth. So there, there's that language again. Right, and then you find the word lahakim again in uh, chapter 28, verse 9. Yekim kadosh. Okay, so again... You know, a simple way to translate it is God is setting you up as a holy nation. But like you said, it's God is causing you to stand tall as a holy nation. 
So uh, for those of us keeping count in just this short chapter and a half section, that, that's already five key words that hint to this idea of elevation of height. Right. And then the grand finale is in chapter 28, verse 13. Mm-hmm. Beth, do you want to read that one? Yeah, sure. So Hashem is going to make you the head and not the tail. And you are going to be only above everything, you're not going to be below. Yeah, so I, I think we're noticing a sort of like a topographical theme here in terms of the, the abundance of terms about elevation in this section. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm intrigued. Where do you want to go with all of this? So follow me here, okay? I'm following. I'm ready. So the layout of this mountain situation here right? We have these two mountains that are opposite each other. Mm -hmm. And in between them is this valley. Mm -hmm. So Beth, what I want to suggest is that there might be a symbolic connection between height and blessing and lowness and curse. Okay. I'm curious to see where you're going with this. My first reaction is that if that were the case, you would have thought we would proclaim the blessings on a, on a mountaintop, but specifically we'd proclaim the curses in a lowland, which is not what you see. So, so let's, I'll, I'll follow you along and uh, tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking. Okay, your question's a good question, and I have an answer for it, uh, which I'll get to a little bit later, but uh, I think your question's better than my answer. But nevertheless, let's, uh, let's go forward and, and uh, you let me know what you think about the theory, Big Adult. Okay, all right. Okay, so we're actually going to take a, a little bit of a weird detour into grammar. Okay, so so Daniel, I don't know about you. I love grammar, and I assume that even for those of our listeners who think they don't love grammar, you're going to bring it to life for them right now. Am I right? I hope so. And guys, uh, if right now you're thinking you want to uh, kill me for bringing grammar into this, give it a chance. Do me a favor. I think you're going to find we have some interesting things to say. But uh, as we do that, I just want to um, leave everyone with one image, which we're going to come back to, which I think the grammar will help us understand better. And that is that this scene where these blessings and curses is taking place is a scene where there are two mountains and a valley between them, almost like uh, two humps on a camel with a little dip in the middle. Okay, I've got I've got the image burned in my mind. Two mountains, valley between them, camel humps. Okay. Great. So now we're going to talk about the word for bracha and the words for curses. Okay. So now with that in mind, I want to mention to you a really interesting comment by Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, the Maharal of Prague, in the way he explains the word bracha. And the Maharal's theory comes from an interesting observation he makes about the word bracha um, and the fact that in Gematria, the word bracha is... Um, base is 2, Vaish is 200, Chaf is 20, so it's 222 altogether. A preponderance of twos. The word seems to be somehow essentially connected to the idea of two-ness. I hear that. And Maharal suggests based on that that bracha is actually all about multiplicity. Two being the essential number that represents something greater than just one. Mm-hmm, right. Now, fascinatingly, if you think about it, the words for curses are actually really interesting inverses of that idea. So for instance, what words do we know that mean to curse? Well, a couple occur to me off the top of my head. There's klala. I think that's the word that is used here. Um, there's another word that we get for curse also, which is th- this language of arur, cursed. Right. And there's one more that I know of also in the Torah, which is lakov. Lakov. Okay, that one doesn't sound as familiar to me. Where does does that one come up a lot? In Parshat Balak, it comes up a couple of times. For instance, Balak criticizes Bilam because he said, Lakov oivai lakachticha, I believe. Ah, okay. I hired you to curse 
them what you're doing. Right, exactly. Now, the fascinating thing about those words, there are actually two things that I want to point out. Number one, what do they start with? One of them is Arur. Right, so that with, one starts with an Aleph. Which in Gamatra is? Which in Gamatra is one. Yep. Okay, starting with a softball, I like it. <laughs> um, and then how about the Kalil? Klala starts with a Kuf, which in Gamatria is 100. 100. 100. And Lakov or Lokabokel, right? Also a Kuf, which is once again. Also 100. There you go. Right? So isn't that interesting that the words for curses all start with ones? That is interesting. So, Dana, what I hear you saying is that. This theory of the Maharaj, you can actually see it brought to life in the grammar. The idea here is that the essence of blessing is multiplicity, is going from from one to two. And the essence, what I'm hearing you say, the essence of a curse is shrinking down. It's the opposite of multiplicity. It's going from two down to one. So that that's really cool. Uh, I just, I need to chime in here for a second that I um, I need to give credit to my brother-in-law here for pointing out that thing about the ones at the beginning of the words. I actually had shared with him a different point about these verbs, which is that they're also all doubled letter verbs, mm. which means to say like the kalel, you have the second and third letters of the root are the same. Kuf, lamed, lamed. The lamed and the lamed are, are, are doubled up. Exactly. And what's interesting in Hebrew is that very often when you have a doubled letter, one of them ends up disappearing. So for instance, in the word arur, which the root is aleph resh resh, mm-hmm. uh, when you make it into a verb, you say laor, right? And also where lakov is also a root kuf bet bet, where the second bet disappears, and you have forms like lakov or lokabo kale. Interesting. What do you what do you make of that? Well, basically speaks to your point, which, you know, you the way you had uh, framed what we're doing here is that while bracha is about multiplicity, klala is about diminishing or shrinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And the, and the roots themselves are roots that shrink when you conjugate them. Okay, all right, that's kind of cool. I see that. Okay, so Daniel, we've, we've, hold on a second. We've covered a lot of ground here. Can you just, just take me from the top, remind me again what question it is that we're answering and, and how we got here? Sure, Beth. So we were talking about this strange section of text about proclaiming blessings and curses on Har Grizim and Har Eval, right? And we wanted to know why are we even bothering with these proclamations and why are the children of Israel divided up in seemingly random ways across these mountains? But also, you know, if we're going to be proclaiming blessings and cursings, why would we choose this setting? Mm-hmm. Moses could have told us to proclaim them anywhere. So why, why is it that it's, it's on these two mountaintops with the valley in between them? Right. And what we've been working to up until now is showing how there is actually a relationship between the idea of blessing and multiplicity and curse and oneness or diminishment. Mm-hmm. Right. Blessing is, is twos. Blessing is multiplicity. Curses is ones. Curses is uh, is diminishment. So how does that how does that map onto the topography as you see it? Nice pun there, by the way. Map onto the topography. So I think on, on one level, there's just sort of a, a powerful geographic symbolism here. This setting is a setting that's been chosen to impress upon the children of Israel that there is a potential for blessing and curse, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And in this setting, we see elevated points, and those elevated points are multiple. There are two of them. Yep. And there's a low point. But there's only one of them. Oh, I, I hear what you're saying now. Okay. Um, bracha, a bracha is a high point, and a bracha is all about multiplicity. So there's two high points, and a klala is a low point. A klala is all about diminishment, singularity. So there's one low point. There's, it, there's two brachas, and there's one klala. 
Right. And Beth, if you remember the last verse we looked at together before we went on this uh, grammar and topography mashup tangent here, was, Right. So that's that verse that talks all about uh, you should be the head, not the tail. You should be up and not down. Right. So again, I think that if we buy into this idea that um, these mountains and this valley between them are symbolic representations of the idea of blessing and curse, that sort of dovetails really nicely with this thought here, which is that part of the blessing is that you will be up, right? In other words, blessing is about being on top. Mm -hmm. And these mountains in this valley that they're going to be going to very shortly after they enter the land will be impressing upon them. You know, you have the potential to go one of two ways here right? You can take the opportunity that God's giving to you to be his people and live correctly in this place and then grow, right? Become multiple, grow high, or you can turn your back on God and then you can be low and diminish and, you know, remain only one and never expand. That's a cool idea. So you're, you're picking up, you're not just saying, hey, Beth, there's a symbolism hidden in the text and you and I as readers 3,500 years later can dig into it and appreciate the, the meaning it, it adds to the text. You're saying, no, there was this shaped the emotional experience potentially of B'nai Yisrael as they stood there on those mountaintops proclaiming the verses, that they, they felt the potential, the looming potential of blessing and curse in a way that just wouldn't have impacted them had they just been, you know, stand, standing on the ground and, and doing the same. I think so. I think... At least it's a possible way to uh, to read this. Mm-hmm. I think it also hints at something which is very real, which I can I connect to in my own spiritual life, which is that spiritually there is a difference between standing in a valley and proclaiming something and standing on a mountaintop and proclaiming it. When I stand on a mountaintop and I'm able to see an expanse of land, you know, stretching out before me, and I'm close to the heavens and I'm close to the clouds, I I feel inspired, I feel uplifted, I feel uh, more of a a, a yearning and a closeness to God than if I'm just standing in the supermarket. You know, that's real. That's why people go out on hikes, right? So maybe there was something of that in the orchestration of this experience. Maybe. Now, I, I did say that I was going to get back to your question about um, if this theory holds true, why the, the curses weren't uttered in the valley itself. And Beth, I told you that your question is better than the answer that I have. And I, I think in a little bit, it's a cop out because I think that the mystery of why one mountain is the place for blessing and one mountain is the place for curse probably is going to connect some way either to the names of the mountains or to which tribes stand on each mountain. But I think the theory we're suggesting here can still be tenable if you sort of, you know, zoom out and say, you know, the the process happening in this whole area of these two mountains in this valley, it's a process of explaining or of proclaiming who is blessed and who is cursed. Mm-hmm. And I think that the symbolism of the mountains and the valley would hold even if, let's say, half of the children of Israel standing on one mountain were the ones who acknowledged the curses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear that. I'm seeing it a little differently. I want to just test out a little theory of my own with you, which is that if you're down in a valley, standing in a valley, all you can see is the valley. But if you're up on the mountaintop, ah, now, now you can see both the mountain and the valley. And maybe there's something to the idea that even those tribes that were up on the mountaintop answering amen to the curses, if they were going to really internalize the choice that lay before them, you, you, you could be cursed or you could be blessed. They need to be able to see both the mountain and the valley. They need to be able to see you could potentially be up here or you could be down there, you know, and now, and now you choose. Now they're both arrayed before you. Well, Beth, I like that idea a lot. Thank you for that. That's what I'm here for, Daniel. 
You know, Daniel, this is all interesting. If, we, if we've got a couple minutes to share, I, I, just looking at these verses, another idea occurs to me about why mountains and why, you know, what's with this whole choreography. And in particular, I'm looking at the language of the curses that the Levites are supposed to proclaim. Because as we mentioned before, it's not a comprehensive summary of the Torah. There are specific laws. And we don't have time to go into it all, but one... I, one common link that I see between all of these laws is that they all seem to have to do with doing things in in secret, doing things that you think no one else sees. You know, you're you're cursed if you um, don't honor your right, parents. Right, right, right. You're cursed if you if you move your neighbor's landmark. Right, if you like sneak in the dead of night or when your neighbor's away on vacation and you move his fence post, you know, a few meters in one direction to make your uh, your your territory bigger. Right, and Beth, the, the the section even actually mentions the word seder twice. Mm, exactly, right. Seder meaning secretness. Right, right. You know, um, the, all these laws about sexual immorality, things that happen in the bedroom, like no one else is seeing that. You know, there are laws about um, taking bribes. That's done in secret. There's laws that have to do with um, not abusing blind people, right? Not taking advantage of blindness. Yeah, so, I, I think I remember see, hearing something about a theory similar to this in in, uh, in one of my foreman's videos, actually. Ah, okay, very cool. Bar- Baruch Shekivanti. So, um, so what I'm thinking with this is that the people are about to go into the land. They've heard all these laws from God, but there's still a little part of them that says, all right, so when I'm out in public, I'm going to do exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to show up for Torah reading in shul, and I'm going to give lots of tzedakah so that my uh, my name is, is you know, in a plaque on, on the school wall and all that kind of stuff. Everything that everyone sees, I'm going to behave like I should. But there are all these ways in which I'm going to act when I think no one is looking. I'm going to take bribes. I'm going to abuse the stranger. I'm going to abuse a blind person. I'm going to not honor my parents. And um, and God is saying, you think there's such a thing as secrecy? You think that you can act in a way that no one sees? There's no such thing as secrecy. Every action you take, it's as if you're on a mountaintop and the entire world can see you. So go up on a mountaintop and proclaim all of these curses that will befall you if you act in any of these secret ways. Because you're always living your life on a mountaintop. You know, I, I, I can always see what you do. Beth, I think that that that's a very very powerful uh, piece of this. Does it answer in any way why these mountains specifically? Hmm, no clue. I don't know anything about these mountains. Right, because it's just so hard to find information about them. Right. This will definitely be uh, a topic that we will need to explore again. But I think for now we walked away with a lot of uh, really interesting nuggets to mull over. Yeah. You know, Daniel, I wonder, you know, we've been talking a lot about the experiential nature of spirituality in this podcast. And I wonder if this is the kind of thing where the insight only comes to you when you're on a mountaintop. So, you know, all of our listeners, wherever you are, you don't have to go atop Har Grisim and Har Eval, but see if you can find some time on Sunday, take it to you, we'll go atop a mountaintop, meditate on these thoughts for a little while. And then if any insights occur to you, I hope you'll write into us at uh, info at alephbeta.org. Yeah, definitely interested in hearing what you guys have to say. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And once again, reminder, please subscribe. Go do it right now, um, so that way you won't miss us, and have a great Shabbos.